Hello, and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. Each month, we'll bring you insights and perspectives from leaders in the built environment. Some months will feature industry leaders sharing their personal insights and their own words on topics that we think you'll find quite relevant and quite timely. Other months will feature our own subject matter experts sharing the hard-earned wisdom they've gained via their proverbial 10,000 hours of research, practical application, and reflection. But every month, our commitment is to bring you leading thinking on topics most relevant to industry leaders with a passion for learning and continuous improvement. So in a moment, I'm going to introduce uh, Jay Bowman, senior partner in our strategy practice, head of our market research function. Uh, for those that don't know, Jay's fingerprints can be seen in many of our market overview and outlook publications in each quarter via our short videos on where we think the market's headed. I like to say Jay is our one of one. He has a unique ability to analyze volumes of data and connect the dots uh, to say, where is the uh, where is the market headed? So good morning, Jay. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me, Scott. So our recently released uh, 2023 forecast calls for a 2% drop in overall put-in-place construction in the U.S. I've heard you often say that there is no monolithic construction industry. Given this 2% overall drop, how would you unpack that and what does this all mean to you? Well, there's probably a couple of things, and and you're right that there is no monolithic construction industry. And the reason I I say that is sometimes I think people get just sort of, you know, hooked on or focused on, you know, what is that total drop or what is that total increase? But it it means a little bit, but it doesn't mean a whole lot. So what I mean by that is if, if you just take our forecast, for example, of construction spending put in place, well, we track 19 different segments. So that's everything from single-family homes, multifamily, lodging, office, commercial, healthcare, education, heavy civil construction, but 19 different segments. They're all moving in different directions. They're influenced by different things. Then you start to layer in the geographic component. Well, it's not just 50 states. It's almost 400 metropolitan markets. And pretty soon you realize that the U.S. construction industry is really just, you know, a composite of a lot of different smaller individual markets that are moving in all different directions. So that's what I mean when I say it's it's not monolithic, right? It it really is a collection of hundreds, if not thousands of of individual markets moving in different directions. What are you saying is it's a lot like the stock market, right? When somebody says the market's up or the market's down, you know, that's really relevant unless you own that basket of stocks that they happen to be referring to, whether it's the Dow or the S&P. Absolutely. That's that's probably a fantastic uh, analogy for it because, you know, there is no monolithic stock market either, right? And we do use the Dow as a way of measuring, you know, so overall direction, just like we would use a forecast the exact same way, you know, well, what's the overall demand outlook uh, appear to be? But yes, I may be invested in different things at different times and so the market may be going, but my personal holdings could be going in a different direction. So yeah, that's a that's a great way uh, to describe it. So if you take that investment philosophy forward and you apply it to that to the market as we see it or as you see it over the next twelve months or so, if we think macro level, the the market is going to uh, drop by two percent. Where would you place your bets within that within within that overall market within those nineteen segments you talked about? So I think there's two ways that I would counsel people to think about that. The first one being, let's start with that macro level sort of, you know, we'll call it monolithic, but 2% decline in construction. Well, a 2% decline in construction 
you have to put that in perspective historically. So yes, it's down 2% for 2023, but that's really compared to 2020, about 2021, 6% higher. Right. It's 30% higher than what it was in 2018. Now, granted, inflation eats some of that, but still, it's a massive market. It's a $1.7 trillion market. And so one of the things I've told people a lot is, well, down doesn't mean dead, right? So there's still tremendous opportunity. To your point, though, about where would you place bets? Well, it's all different segments that are moving in different directions. So single family home, we are uh, forecasting a major correction, you know, double digit correction this year in single family homes. But we continue to see increases in multifamily in the non-residential building side and even in the non-building side, which include highway and street, water, wastewater, power, et cetera. So if I were thinking about in terms of bets, you know, I would look at it in terms of one, first of all, is it a big enough market? Is there a lot of opportunity? So even if it may not have, say, double digit growth. So let's say multifamily, for example. You know, that's single uh, single digit growth over the next couple of years, but it is the largest segment outside of single family homes and improvements in the U.S. So it is a huge, huge market. There's still demand, even if it's not growing at that major rate. Uh, but if you're looking for where is the real growth side of things, well, most of that's going to be in the non-building segment uh, around highway and street, transportation, et cetera. A lot of that has to do uh, with the federal funding uh, that was made available through IAJA and other sources uh, to the tune of about $500 billion in additional funding above what was, uh, it was originally called for. And then even on the building side, I still think you'll see tremendous growth uh, over the long term. It does have cycles to it, so you see sometimes it plateaus, but still things around you know, uh, distribution and warehousing, around data centers, semiconductor manufacturing obviously is a is a large part of what's going on in the life sciences side of things. So there'll be still a lot of different areas where we'd see tremendous growth uh, over the next couple of years. And you're talking about segments, I think, which is important because one of the things that, that again, I've heard you say is this whole concept of the new economy versus the old economy. You know, where, where is the industry evolving uh, and what's going to be driving or underpinning construction over the foreseeable future? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, when I say uh, new economy versus old economy, what I'm really referring to is what has been the evolution of things in this country, in this industry, from an economic perspective, a demographic perspective, a, a technological perspective, you could go on and on. But it's the idea that what's driving or creating demand, however you want to define that, jobs, need, et cetera, has really evolved rather quickly, I think over probably the last 10, probably 15 years really. And so it really does uh, represent just the new way of doing things. That's why I call it new economy. But going back to what I was saying earlier, where some of those growth segments are, you know, data centers, for example, think of the explosion of technology. Um, you know, we've had like about a five-fold increase in internet connected devices over the last couple of years. Uh, we have sensors in just about everything. Uh, we carry around these phones that are really mini computers now, and all that eats up data. And so uh, with the amount of uh, data center construction, that represents, again, one of these kind of new economy segments. Same thing if you look at, say, life sciences, where I personally believe 
that pharmaceuticals has become the primary or the first way of serving or treating, let's say, illness and disease, more so than, say, go back 20, 30 years ago where it may have been seeing your doctor. Um, same thing from a distribution perspective. Again, yes, these things have cycles and you know, sometimes they're growing faster than others, but the rise of e-commerce, that represents a shift, again, from a consumer behavior perspective, a technological perspective, et cetera, that again says, well, this is just a different way of doing things. And so all of these things, whether it's, again, pharmaceuticals and, and life sciences or distribution, data centers, you know, everything else that's kind of wrapped around it, are those things that are really driven by what I'd say this change and just you know economic forces, which we call the new economy. Now, the old economy, <clears throat> uh, not trying to say that means that this demand goes away, but think of traditional things like office, you know, traditional retail, like shopping centers and malls. Uh, think of banks and car dealerships and all those different things. It's not that there won't be demand for those things, but I do believe that they will be more dictated by where you are, meaning if you're in a geography, a state, a city, whatever, that is really growing because of population, you'll still see some of that, but it just doesn't have the same tide behind it that these new economy sectors do. So Jay, you're, you're touching on it a little bit, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about geography and what role you see that playing in terms of concentration over the next several years. Sure. So uh, all things aside, the number one indicator or driver of demand for construction services is people. Where there are people, construction follows. Where there aren't people, typically you have less of it. And so we did hit a point uh, here recently where now 90% of the population lives in urban markets. And if you take, again, our total construction spending number, say $1.7 trillion roughly, about a third of that, actually a little more than a third, 35%, occurs in just 12 metropolitan markets. So again, like I said earlier, there's almost 400 metropolitan markets. And now you're saying that 12 of those, roughly 400, represent 35%. While that is an amazing statistic in and of itself, it becomes even more so when you consider that just 10, 20 years ago, that number may have been 20%, 25%. So it's this further and further concentration in fewer and fewer markets. Uh, and even in those markets, there's movement. Uh, Riverside, uh, California, for example, has moved up into uh, one of those top 12 spots. And the reason being is you were asking me about these new economy uh, segments. Well, every one of those new economy segments is present in Riverside. And so it's attracting that as well as, as people. Uh, but then other areas where you're seeing growth, they're not necessarily in the top 12, but you've seen Austin move up, Nashville, uh, places like Denver, you know, all those places you kind of hear in the news of, oh, this is the next hot place to live. Uh, but even if you take the next just 10 markets, so instead of 12, now 22, that's 50% of all construction spending. So that's what we say about it, just where you are will increasingly matter in terms of opportunity, not just the volume of opportunity, but just sheer growth and opportunity. So it's the old, the old phrase, you know, demographics is destiny. 
Absolutely. And so what are you saying is that one half or 50% of all dollars are going to be spent in 5% of the total markets, Correct. which is kind of staggering if you step back and think about it. And that's why I said it, it, the statistic itself is incredible, but when you compare it historically, it just becomes even more so because of just the further and further concentration that we see. Just let's go a little bit more on that string. And so the, the whole concept of mega projects and the, the concentration of mega projects and what makes that what makes up that $1.7 trillion you talked about. Can you talk more about where we see that headed? Yeah. And so for anybody who doesn't know how we define a mega project or how mega projects are typically defined, that's a project that's valued at a billion dollars or more uh, construction value. And it's amazing when you think that you know, recently mega projects or projects valued, again, a billion dollars or more, represented about 20% uh, plus of construction starts. Uh, so when you start to, again, just like we we're saying, there's mo no monolithic construction industry. If I start to break that down and say, okay, well, what are the opportunities based on either, you know, the segments, meaning the types of construction I might be doing, am I in multifamily or am I in heavy civil? And then I start to think, okay, well, where am I, you know, do I, compete in this market or compete in that market, that mega projects component adds a whole new wrinkle because all of a sudden, if I'm someone who cannot participate in a project of that scale, well, 20% of the market kind of just is immediately taken off the top, right? And the other component of that that I think is important is even if I'm not competing for that type of work or on the type on that particular project, they create sort of this vacuum, if you will, of demand for labor, materials, equipment, and maybe not even just locally. I mean, pulling from perhaps neighboring states even. So it has a huge, huge impact, not only on the market that's available, but even for the market that is available to me if I'm not competing those from a resource perspective. Right. And so I know a lot of what we talk about and what, what we see in our strategy work is this whole concept of what's the addressable market. Because as you just talked about, right, just because the market as a whole is moving in this direction, or if it's going to be up 5% or 10% is really irrelevant. Right. You know, it all comes down to what do you, as your firm, based on your capabilities, what can you access and realistically, you know, expect to win? And then you can start to take that monolithic market and break it down into what's really actionable. And therefore, what kind of a business development strategy can you put in place to go execute? Yeah, and I think that you really can't even get to an effective plan until you really know, well, what is the true opportunity? Otherwise, right. I'm throwing darts at a board. Right. So it's kind of looking at the size, shape, and direction of the overall market and the climate and where it's headed. You know, who are those customers that you can reasonably access? You know, what are their buying practices? What are their preferences? Um, what's the competitive landscape look like? Are there five or 10 you know, potential incumbent competitors or are there 15 or 20? Right. And then ultimately, what are the value drivers of your company and what do you do really well, you know, better than most? And then what can you go after? So it really is kind of putting a puzzle together to figure out what's actionable. That's right. That's right. Jay, in your, in your team's work, a lot of what you do is spend time talking to not just uh, construction, you know, le leaders within construction firms, but also the owners, you know, the, the, the folks that fund all these construction projects. And by my estimate, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 plus owners per year that we're, that we're talking to, that your team's talking to. Based on what you've heard recently from that community, what is it that folks are thinking? What's top of mind for them over the next 12 to 24 months? 
Yeah, I used to joke uh, several years ago that I was kind of the odd duck at FMI in the sense that I spoke more with project owners than I did with contractors. Uh, but it, it really does provide a lot of insights into how they operate, you know, what drives their decisions, how they're thinking. And I think I would probably, you know, frame this in terms of what, what they were thinking during the last several years where we were in a period of, you know, accelerated demand and growth, expansion versus, you know, now we've kind of moved into, I don't want to say contraction, but obviously the challenges that we saw from an inflation perspective, supply chain, et cetera. And during that period of, of rapid expansion, which was really, you know, I would say 10 plus years following the Great Recession, when you talked with owners, if there was anything that they valued most, most and it's probably kind of twofold, it was competency and capacity. I mean, that's what they were after. And it's not to say that nothing else matters, but really with the amount of work they were trying to get done, they just wanted trust that or conviction that whoever they would hire had the skill sets, the knowledge, et cetera, to be able to do the work, but then the capacity to actually deliver. There was a lot of pressure, particularly around schedule, uh, even probably more so than budget in some cases because of what was going on at the time. Now you kind of shift to today. And again, I'm not saying that it's, you know, we're in a period of necessarily full contraction, but obviously a forecast is calling an overall decline of about 2%. But what changes? And I think the best way to understand what changes is to go back and say, well, what were the lessons learned from the past? And so you take the Great Recession, for example, and you say, okay, well, for you know, the construction industry, that was roughly peak to trough 2006 to 2011. So we had about a five-year period where, you know, for a lot of us, we felt like the bottom had really fallen out. Uh, and it's not that owners told us, well, competency and capacity don't matter. It's a matter of what gets emphasized. And what actually got emphasized, and what I believe you'll start to see more and more emphasis, and in fact, we're hearing it from owners now, and we're actually starting to observe it, is that customer relationships start to rise more to the top. So while one person may have been very competent and capable, as the market kind of contracts, they become more selective, right? It's, well, who do I really know? Who really understands our business? Who's the easiest to work with? Um, we don't have to teach them anything. So those incumbent positions become increasingly valuable. In fact, uh, there's been some research that's been done that shows the value of customer relationships as a percent of overall enterprise value during periods of contraction. And it raises you know, significantly. In fact, it's actually the number one uh, contributor to how they would value a business is based on the strength of their customer relationships. And while that's true, that customer relationships become increasingly more important uh, as, you know, in periods of contraction, it doesn't necessarily mean that the last in is the first out. Because sometimes that last in was able to get in with that competency and capacity because they had a better understanding of what was it truly that that customer was buying, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think that a lot of times, you know, particularly, and, and this is true for, you know, not just our industry, I think a lot of industries, is that we get really focused on the features of our own organization. 
oh, here's what we do, and here's our strength, and, and we do this and we do that. But we fail to translate that then from the feature to what's the true benefit to the owner? And is that benefit really valuable to them because it doesn't reflect their business? Most of these owners are not in the business of construction, right? Construction is just a means to an end for them. But even that selectivity, while it might be relationship-driven, is also selectivity in price. You know, people become more price-sensitive. It's just the way things are. And so, you know, being able to look and see, well, have we had a little bit of fat? Going to get into some of our estimates. So those things do become increasingly important, uh, you know, as we kind of see this shift from a cyclicality perspective. So as you talk about customer relationships, what I hear you saying in there is there's a big element of trust, right? What's the trust level between the owner and the, their preferred provider, preferred provider, excuse me. Just to kind of um, take that a little bit farther, Jay, I'd love to know how you connect that whole notion of customer relationship and how that's you know kind of moving up in priority uh, from an owner perspective. How does that connect to the whole net promoter score concept and the whole, you know, I'm willing to you know, risk my reputation to recommend said contractor or said provider to a peer or a colleague of mine? Yeah, and I, we, you hit the nail on the head when you said risk my reputation. And that's really what attracted us, I would say, most to the net promoter score when that concept really sort of first uh, came to market around 2004. Uh, I mean, we had been doing customer research for, you know, gosh, years before then. Um, a lot of it was, well, how satisfied are you with this contractor or that contractor, et cetera. But when the Net Promoter Score came out, which is based on the question, you know, how likely are you to recommend, you know, X, like how, how likely are you to recommend FMI uh, to a friend or colleague on a scale of 1 to 10 or 0 to 10 uh, from, you know, not at all to absolutely what was most intriguing about that was that you had to score a 9 or a 10 to be what's considered sort of a promoter. You know, these are the people that if I were to ask you, hey, you know, Scott, would you recommend this particular contractor? And you'd, and you'd score them a 9 or 10. You'd be like, absolutely. I wouldn't even think of using anybody else. They're the best. Let me tell you why. Now, you're essentially going to be an extension of their marketing <laughs> In business development efforts, right? A seven to eight, which is you would think is a fairly good score, has proved to be passively satisfied. Again, I ask you that same question, and your answer might be, well, I would include them on the bid list, or I would consider them. I'd also consider you'd give me some other names. And then a six or below is a detractor, well, obviously the opposite of promoters. But like you said, that, that key element is this my reputation at risk. Because when you're recommending you're not only now recommending the reputation of that firm, you're recommending based on your own personal reputation. And so the importance of that, when we look at these, or we do our customer research uh, for, for our clients, is understanding, well, what drives that? You know, what are the things that sort of link back to that? And a lot of times it's, it's, it's surprising. It's very different for every contractor because they may perform differently in different areas. And you know, some owners are more, you know, worried about hand-holding and they need that close customer, you know, kind of centric contact. Others, you know, might be more, it's just about the budget and as long as we can get it done and you make me, you know, look good, that's fine. But within all of this, what we found was that everybody has sort of a boss, if you will. 
Even the customer has a boss. Uh, think about, you know, a utility contractor, you know, uh, for the cable company or whatever. And let's just say that, you know, you have worked for years to get the grass on your little strip of sidewalk to grow. And then lo and behold, the contractor comes and, you know, digs up your grass, put in a new cable line, and they put out cheap seed or whatever. Well, that reflection is not just on that contractor, it's now on that cable company or the utility that hired that, that cable company. I may be using this example because it's a little too close to home for me. It's a, <laughs> it may have happened, let's say. But, hypothetically. Hypothetically. But it really is about understanding, I think, going back to what we were saying earlier, if the, the, when, con, excuse me, when owners can be more selective, it's really the contractor's that understand their customer's business, not just the project, but understand how they operate, what's important to them, you know, how construction fits in with what they do, that inevitably always have a much higher, you know, likelihood to recommend score or net promoter score, which is really just the difference between the percent they're in that promoter category minus those are in that detractor category. I've yet to see a contractor in 25 years of being at FMI that had no clue what their client's business was like and had a good net promoter score. So you, you hit a key concept in there, which is everybody's got a boss, right? Right. It's a publicly traded company. Even the CEO answers to a board. Correct. So what, what I hear you saying in that implicit is that, you know, making decisions on which firm to use, you know, is very likely to be career limiting for some people if the, if the wrong choice is made. So a lot of what we counsel our clients to, to think about is what, how do you become the board's safe choice? How do you check all the boxes to all the folks that are going to influence or make, make the decision? How can you satisfy all of their requirements? Because each person that's part of that group or that committee or whatever has got something at stake and something very real at stake. And so what, what are the things you need to do to kind of get your house in order? Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of in that same line, we talked about owner philosophy and owner themes and what you think uh, or what you're seeing there over the next 12 months. What are you seeing now from a, from a construction CEO confidence level? Compare that today versus what it was maybe six, 12 months ago. So th there's a couple of ways I would look at that, and I would use three indices to point that out. Uh, the first one would be our non-residential uh, construction index or NRCI. Uh, the second one that I would use would be our heavy civil uh, construction index, which is basically the same thing, but for heavy civil contractors. And then the third would be the construction industry roundtable or CERT sentiment index. All three of these, uh, the first two are our indices. The third one is one that we run uh, on behalf of CERT. Uh, but as far as confidence goes, uh, if you think of most sentiment indices as anything over 50 suggests a market expansion, anything below 50 uh, suggests a uh, contraction, our latest NRCI, uh, which would be for Q1 of this year, 2023, registered 46.4. So it's in that contraction territory, if you will. It's relatively unchanged, I would say, from the fourth quarter of 2022 when it was 46.3. So that's a rounding error, probably in my opinion. Um, so we're back around territories we were seeing around 2020, right? So people are concerned. However, 
I think when you talk to a lot of people, backlogs still look pretty good. I think it's just a reflection of there's so much uncertainty going on right now. And, you know, what is the Fed going to do? Are they going to continue to raise rates? And then how quickly would that perhaps have an impact on things? So there are concerns. The heavy civil index, uh, by comparison, is actually in positive territories at 51.3 and actually rising. I think that it's relatively low to speak of because we've gone through some continuing resolutions trying to get to a new uh, federal uh, infrastructure bill, but we now have IJA. But historically, it just takes time for those monies to become available. It's not like all of a sudden, here's all this money, let's you know go forth and prosper. That money has to be kind of distributed out to the states to the counties, to the municipalities. That takes them some time then to ramp up on what project. So usually it's a little bit of a slow burn to begin with. But I would expect to see that heavy civil index continue to rise across right. the year. And even next year, as more and more of those monies become available. I think that you'll probably see, even on the NRCI, or the non-residential construction index, I think it'll probably level out close to 50. I don't think it'll be you know, setting the world on fire for the next year or so, but I don't think it will be as dire either as people start to find their footing. And like you said, there's there's no monolithic industry. The CERT one's the most interesting one of all, though. It's at 51, which would again be, would think be a very positive score. But over the past year or so, that's come down from astronomical highs in the 70s. So it's a major shift, if you will. But this goes back to something we were talking about earlier with mega projects, where we have seen a little bit of a slowdown in mega projects, you know, and even just large projects in general kind of being pushed to the right. And when you think of the scale that these op that these companies operate, CERT represents the largest designers and contractors in North America. They tend to be somewhat more sensitive to some of these macro issues. They're seeing stuff across a very broad geography. So uh, I think it just reflects a different market that they're playing in than a lot of other people are. Yeah, and just for full context, the CERT is Construction Ministry Roundtable. So Correct. as you said, it is the probably the top 130, 150 largest design firms and construction firms in the U in North America. That's right. So, um, so we've talked about just overall, you know, big big picture market, you know, two percent decline in, in 2023. However, when you start to unpack that, you know, a lot of that or the majority of that's driven by the residential, which is a you know big portion of the overall spend. But the non-residential and the non-building are both projected to be up 8%. So there's lots and lots of opportunity out there. It's just where do you choose to place right. your bets? And um, something that we've found over the years is, you know, if a, if a firm makes a decision and a commitment today to enter a new market or a segment, that's typically going to be about 18 to 36 month investment period to pay off. And so there is some time to kind of get mobilized to, to build a team, you know, or acquire a, a capability. Um, but starting now makes a lot of sense, you know, to pay off down the, down the road. Um, as we talked earlier about geography and we talked about owner philosophy, uh, would love to see or hear from you, Jay, what are you seeing relative to competition and how is competition evolving? Well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> It's one of those things that say, well, does competition ever stop evolving, right? So it's continually changing. I think, you know, over my career in the industry, what we've seen, you know, with the, you know, the rise in design build, 
with what we've seen from you know self perform even with more and more of the the off-site construction and the prefabrication processes i think one of the bigger things that we're pricing from a competition standpoint if you will uh particularly as we think about in terms of where the markets are are headed in this kind of a new economy old economy is a concentration or a focus on more and more specialization in a sense uh, a lot of the work that represents these uh, let's say new economy segments if you will again life sciences uh, food and beverage manufacturing semiconductors etc uh, there is a complexity, if you will, and there's a difference to a lot of that type of work. Some of it just because it's some of it's, I say new, uh, new, relatively speaking, that not everybody can just flip the switch and say, I'm going to do this tomorrow. So I think the ability to specialize, and I don't mean just specialize in that particular product type, but maybe it's components related to that product type? Is it the power systems related to that? Is it you know, the racking that might go into something like that? Uh, I do see where specialization seems to be a trend and more so because it's a way to differentiate in a relatively crowded market. As I mentioned before, owners do tend to become more selective during down markets. A lot of that is absolutely driven by relationship, but the next thing right behind it is, but how well do they understand? When owners are concerned because of market dynamics, whether it's economic related, you add in the additional issues of supply chain, you know, cost being uh, somewhat, uh, I say, there's not as much flexibility in cost, right? I mean, we have to manage budgets much tighter. There is a tendency to look for who really is the specialist. They're less inclined to try someone new, so to speak. But therein lies a lot of the challenge for a lot of contractors. It's sort of like, well, if I haven't ever done that project, who's going to give me the first chance at that project right. so I can have experience? Right. But I would say probably more than anything right now, what I see is a real focus on specialization. How much of that do you think is underpinned by just the speed to market concept? Because when you look at the new economy sectors, you know, life sciences, mission critical, food and bev, cold storage, et cetera. So, I mean, there's a, a very strong, you know, financial or profit motive, understandably, on the backs of the sooner the facility gets gets built, the sooner that the investors can start to get a return on on that investment. Right. And so it is speed uh, because sometimes the cost of paying, you know, additional premium for a contract might be a rounding error exactly, compared right. to what the cost of that facility was not delivered on time because of the right. revenue it generate. And it may not be just a delay. It could be, well, what if it's rework related? What if, you know, in a food and beverage situation, you cause some type of contamination? You know, those are, those are huge issues. That's again what I mean by do you understand your client's business right. in a sense. So delivering a month faster versus paying the 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 service provider another one or two points. That's you know, it's not not really a comparison. No. Right. You're always gonna opt for the That's right. That's right. Most often you're probably gonna opt for the paying a little bit more on the front end to get the return on the back end. Correct. Um 
you touched on this, but we didn't go very deep, and I'd love to come back to it. Just what you've seen with respect to construction schedules and the compression over the over the last probably ten years. Mm -hmm. So, if you look at you get part of this of looking at project values, because it's hard to do this with really small projects. Because some of these can be, you know, you can do a small project a month, really, if you wanted to. In some cases, but let's talk about projects that I'd say like you know ten, twenty million dollars and more. You know. Starting in like the mid 2000s, you know, up to uh, right before the pandemic, I mean, we saw project schedules on average reduced by roughly a year to two years. And so a lot of people have asked me, well, is that just because we've become more productive? And so I'm sure there's some productivity gains in there. But at the same time, I, I you know, think the owners typically are demanding things faster and faster. We've seen that. We hear that when we talk with people. So we did see that continual decline or, or shortening, if you will, of schedule. So more and more schedule compression. Um, it has somewhat paused a little bit here recently, if not expanded. But it's not because owners are giving you more time. It's because we ran into all those issues from a supply chain. It just it wasn't feasible in some cases to deliver as quickly as we were. But even with that, I'll say, you know, blip or that, you know, time of correction that we've seen over the last year or so, I don't know how much more time can be taken out of. But I think that, you know, particularly in these new economy segments, speed to market is absolutely going to become increasingly more important. Again, that's where some of that specialization comes in. It also comes in with, you know, contractors looking at things like, well, do I self-perform certain aspects? You know, because that gives me control over key elements of the delivery. Uh, prefabrication. Prefabrication. Right. You know, all of those things, anything that can feed into a faster delivery, but a guaranteed sort of quality, if you want to call it that, right. performance is going to be is right. going to be critical. So how much can get done in a controlled environment? That's right. Safety consideration of that, which is obviously a plus and lots of lots of pluses if, if it can financially make sense. Right. So we've talked a lot about just where we think things are headed uh, and all that is assuming sort of the world stays, you know, tomorrow what it looks like today, which we know is not going to be the case. So having said that, what do you see as the greatest risks to demand? Are you, are you saying, what are my get-out-of-jail-free cards if, if all things go <laughs> What wrong? are all your caveats? Uh, well, there's a lot. No. Uh, no, I, I, I think there are a couple of things that do need to be you know, considered very soberly. Um, I actually tend to be, despite the reputation I may have at FMI, to be quite an optimist. Uh, I actually continue to think there's great, tremendous opportunity in our industry and will continue to be. I'm, I'm not blind to the cycles and the, there are you know, areas where it goes down and, and those things aren't painful. But I do also think that there are some things that we need to be thinking about and monitoring because they do represent significant threats, if you will, uh, to demand. And this is also one of those things that um, if you, you think about, you know, with your child, right, where you have to always kind of help them balance, particularly when they're really young and they're scared of so many things, you know, is it, is it possible that this could happen? Yes, it's possible. But is the probability that's going to happen? It's relatively low. So what I'm sharing is, is I, I like you know, everybody to keep that in mind, that 
all of these things I'm about to share with you are, are possible, but the probability is, is what's questionable, right? So I think, you know, obviously at the top of that list has to be, you know, conflict and war. Uh, not only have we seen everything that's gone on in the Ukraine, but even in other areas uh, of the world, you know, it just seems to be this, you know, uh, increasing anxiety, if you will, from a war perspective. So if things were to get out of hand, that sounds so terrible to say right now, but if they were to get worse, let's say, or spill over into other areas, uh, that would have, I think, a fairly devastating effect on the marketplace, uh, as almost all wars do in that regard. So that would be number one. Uh, the second thing that I think uh, probably is a higher probability uh, but also of a concern, maybe not to the extent that we would see from uh, the escalation of, of conflict around the globe, would be the impact of fiscal and monetary policy. So uh, we believe that the Fed will continue to raise rates to just probably north of 5%. Uh, I know that their, um, i say hopes, or their, their target is to get inflation down to roughly about 2% or so by the end of the year. I think that's probably a little aggressive. Um, I would say maybe they can get it down to four or five percent. Uh, I just think two percent is probably a little aggressive. But the question is not the concern about them raising rates. The concern is what might be the reaction if that were to kind of spill over into a larger or deeper recession than kind of what we would expect. If the federal government were to decide, well, we need to start stimulating the economy all over again, and then we start putting another trillion plus dollars into the economy, then I think, you know, we'd be right back to the same kind of inflationary problems right. that we were having. You know, all of those issues, plus now you have higher interest rates, I think that could have a very negative impact. Uh, so far, it looks that things have been managed fairly well. I would hope that they can continue to do that. And then probably a third thing that I would say um, would be of concern would be what might happen from a, just a currency perspective. Uh, the, the U.S. dollar is the you know, world's reserve currency. Uh, it's uh, held 60% of foreign reserves are in U.S. denominated dollars, and roughly 80% of cross-border transactions are still done in the dollar. Uh, but last year, China and Saudi Arabia decided to trade oil in their respective currencies. And now with the, you know, I'll say the rise, or at least the uh, foundation being set for digital currencies, uh, that would change things from a global perspective in terms of the U.S.'s influence, uh, what that means from our economic uh, perspective. So those would probably be the, the big three that I would be concerned, uh, concerned about. Again, all possible is the, is the probability that you have to think about. And uh, at the top of that list is obviously war, which could have be more immediate impact, fiscal monetary policy, which could be more of a you know, maybe going into 2024, and then the currency one, which is probably more like a five-year-plus right. type of concern. Something you said at the very beginning, I think, is important. The probability versus the possibility. It's probabilistic versus, you know, some degree of certain. Correct. So last question I want to leave you with is just, obviously, we've talked about a range of subjects. I really appreciate your perspective, Jay, on where you think things are headed and, and sort of the fact-based or the fact sets that's underpinning that. What haven't we talked about that you think uh, we should that would help 
our clients make better decisions in 2023? Well, I, one thing I, I guess I, I always try to impress upon my clients is that there really are very few decisions that an organization can make that I would call fatal. Right? I mean, there's a lot of bad decisions and they have uh, repercussions, but truly fatal decisions are fairly few and far between. And so because of that, I really think that the main thing is, and, and you actually even brought this up, that if I were to uh, start to pursue something new, it might take me 18, 36 months to get there. Nothing happens overnight. And so I would just encourage, you know, if people are thinking about, well, what are my options? Should I make a change? Should I pursue something else? Better to at least start making progress on it now because you can always change than not doing anything at all. Because I would say that some of those fatal decisions are a result of not doing anything. Yeah. Just letting the world pass me by and all of a sudden then I put myself in a worse position than I was to begin with. So that would be that would be the main thing I would say that I think people really should consider is that you know, as long as I can just start making progress, you will never have 100% of the information that you need. Right. Now, you want some of it. I don't want to just, like I said, I want to throw darts at a board. But you do have to know when it's time to at least start moving forward. So the old adage, time marches on, right? That's it's correct. the one constant in life. Time marches on. It's a, I'm reminded of, of something. I think it was Bill Gates who said that most people overestimate what they can get done in a year and dramatically underestimate what they what they can get done in 10 years. And so if you start now, you may not be where you want to be in a year, but two, three, four, it's the whole concept of compounding. Absolutely. It can work for you. It can work against exactly. you. Exactly. But, but it's not going to work if you don't start. That's correct. Great. Well, thanks, Jay. Thanks Thank for being you. on the show. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next month for a conversation with Frank L. Blooms, Mike Lancaster, and Drew Hancock for a masterclass on ownership transition and management succession. You'll hear directly from the seller and from the buyer on what lessons learned they would offer, what would they change if they were to do it all over again, what advice would they offer to others contemplating an internal transition.